thank you. Uh, just by way of another announcement, let me see here. Um, this is the uh, information, contact information on the radio show I do weekly. Uh, it's on every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. But if you can live stream it, just go here, www.wnzn.org. Otherwise, it's 89.1 FM. But the signal tends to go Toledo down southern Ohio. And it, dependent on temperature and frequency strength, it gets into the west side of Cleveland. Uh, but those shows are also archived. And we do a lot of uh, apologetics on that in Bible. But we also do special guests. We try to promote ministries and Christian projects. For example, yesterday we had an interview with uh, Larry Morrow. How many remember Larry Morrow? How many remember Wixie 1260? Oh, okay, all right, there you go. But it's phenomenal guy and how he came to Christ and how the Lord is using uh, him, his voice, uh, still. He does a lot of the stuff for uh, uh, chapel with Alistair Begg and things like that. But uh, anyhow, the best, like I said, the best way if you want to live stream it is WNZN.org. And it's a call-in show. You know, there's content. So if you call in with a question, just make it easy kind of a deal. So I don't like to, I'm joking, really. Um, and here, uh, I'll print this out maybe on a piece of paper or something. This is my son, Michael, does this. He, he gets the tapes from the shows and other places I teach, and he archives it so you can access these. Even this Sunday school, uh, I think there's two or three on there now. Is that not right? right. So thank you. Uh, and so again, at the end, or midway, I'm just trying to think when the end of this class is. Um, I'll have handouts so we can have contact information on any of this. And if anybody wants a postcard on this, uh, more about the radio show, it's right here. My good friend David Abood, who usually sits back there, helps me on this. He's the assistant on the radio show. Okay, we continue our study in the book of Revelation. And uh, th th this is, I just like this theme where. Um, the Lamb is mentioned 27 times in the book of Revelation. I believe it's the central theme of the book. I think, I, to me, this is one of the keys of the book. And just as John, in the Gospel of John, opens the Gospels, chapter 1, by presenting Jesus in, in all his deity and divinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later down, he'll say, um, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So he puts... The deity of Jesus right up front, right at the very beginning, so too John in the book of Revelation, right in chapter 1, you see this idea of the deity of Jesus Christ as we go through the book here. And again, it's, it's the only book in the Bible that specifically has a blessing. It says, blessed is the one who reads, those that hear, and those uh, of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written herein. Um, so... The, the, the blessing is mentioned, special blessings are mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation. And again, we'll go through these as we progress through the book of Revelation. But it's very interesting. Some call it the Beatitudes of the book of Revelation. Any question on any of this? Anything on the... Okay. That's just kind of our way of introduction. And so last week, we got into this chapter one where it'll say in this quick review, just like in John chapter 1 in the gospel, he, he, he testifies to the deity of Jesus Christ, and then John the Baptist introduces Jesus by saying what? Behold the Lamb of God. Like the curtains open, he says, behold the Lamb of God. So too in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, he says in verse 7, behold, he is coming with clouds, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him 
and all the tribes of all the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. See, this idea of apocalypse or revel. What, is, what does apocalypse mean? What does the word mean? Apocalypse means what? Unveiling, unfolding, not secretive, not coded. That's apocrypha. We went through those words last week. But apocalypse, again, think of ancient Rome, and they, they have a great statue to a Caesar or a Nero or Domitian, and they, it's all ready, and the, the, the towns and the multitude of people are there, and it's shrouded, and then at a given time and ceremony, they pull the ropes, and it's, it's apocalypse. You know, it's unveiled. It's, that, that's similar where we get this word usage. Uh, but this is one of the keys. This is one of the central themes of the book of the Revelation is this idea that Jesus is coming back with clouds, highly visible. Uh, he'll say this in Matthew, in the famous Matthew uh, Olivet Discourse. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You'll often see clouds associated. Uh, what's clouds often in the Old Testament? Even in the New Testament. The presence of God, the manifest, the Shekinah. You know, you see that when Moses is up on the mount. Of course, when they build the wilderness tabernacle, you have a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And you'll see this is a very similar. Uh, and the return of Jesus, it'll also say here, uh, let's see. And I will pour out on the, this is from Zechariah, six, seven hundred years before the coming of Jesus, first coming of Jesus Christ. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on the one they have pierced. That's very important. He's pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Notice he's coming. Everybody will see him. Um, and the idea, why is there going to be mourning? Sadness or, or what, what's going on there? You'll see this repeated when he comes. You know, he'll say, when, when Messiah comes, first time he comes, lowly, born in a manger, perhaps in a grotto or a cave or a little uh, animal structure, you see, very at night. Uh, very few people are aware of it, some shepherds. Almost incognito, if you will. That's his first coming. He comes, he says, not to be served, but to serve, and then to give his life a ransom for many. His first coming, he allows wicked men to judge him and, and, and crucify him and kill him. Second coming in the book of Revelation, altogether different. This time he's not coming silently, quietly, in the middle of the night. He's coming back in full glory, blazing, uh, in all power, on the clouds. Those that are ready to meet him, meet him. Those that aren't, it says they'll mourn and wail and they'll even try to call out to the rocks to cover them. You'll see that when we get to later in the book, to cover them out of fear. Why? Because the wrath of the Lamb has come. The wrath of the Lamb has come. Any thoughts on any of this before we move forward? This, matter of fact, this is where Jesus in his trial, if we go back to Matthew, I'm thinking it's Matthew um, 20, I guess here, 23, when he's on trial, and one of the things, the final straw, Matthew chapter 26, remember he has multiple trials, he'll have three civil trials and three religious with Caiaphas, and, uh, and then he'll go before Pilate, etc. But here uh, in chapter 26, Matthew 26, 
verse 63. Remember, at this time, Jesus keeps silent. They make accusations. They make charges upon him. They even strike him and say, prophesy. If you're a prophet, tell us who just struck you. But verse 63 says, he kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under an oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now notice, this is why Jesus will, why will Jesus respond to this question and not the other? He's under oath and also it's the high priest. See, remember Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came under the law. So at this point, he's honoring the position, the question, not the man necessarily. But he says, I put you under oath in the name of the living God. He says, art thou the Christ, the Son of God? And then Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in what? Clouds of glory or clouds of heaven. You see, all of these verses tie into that second coming. And after they hear this, am I speaking too loud? Is it? Yeah. Okay. After he says that, that's it. That's when they tear their clothes. They said, that's it. He said it. Now we kill him. You understand? That's, that's the pronouncement Jesus is making here. Uh, he's claiming this out of Daniel chapter 7, which we looked at, I think, last week. He's coming back in full glory. And that's kind of like when John says, in, back to here in chapter uh, 1 of Revelation, behold, he's coming in the clouds. And of course, in Matthew 1, I mean, Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascends, uh, he gives kind of the final marching orders. Again, we looked at this. This is just a quick review. And it says in verse 9, Acts chapter 1, now when he had spoken these things, and while they watched, he was taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. And they, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. And they said, Man of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up to the heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go up to heaven. Like manner meaning coming down with clouds. Okay? And then, of course, we see that happens on Mount Olivet. And we looked last week in Zechariah chapter 14, when Messiah's second coming, he will come and touch down on Mount Olivet. Any questions on any of that? It's just kind of a quick, quick review. Okay. Now John, he encounters Jesus here in, John, in Revelation 1. After that, behold, he is coming verse. Verse 8 says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What is he saying there? Look at the titles he's assigning to himself here. What's he essentially saying here? I'm timeless. Pardon me? I'm timeless. I'm timeless. Uh, remember Moses at the burning bush when God commissions him to go confront Pharaoh and let my people go? And he says, well, who's sending me? You know, they're real big on what name am I carrying? You know, what, what authority? And, and God, of course, says, you tell him I am that I am. You see? It's almost like timeless. God is, God is not, he's not even about time, beginning time or future time. He is out of time. The same way an artist is not limited to the canvas he paints, right? He's out, he sees the beginning, he sees the end, you know. We little mortals, we finite people try to define the infinite, but we can't. All we can depend on his word and revelation to us about what he's like. Yep. So it kind of moves in that direction. And so he's saying here, now John will say in verse 9, I'm the brother, I'm your brother in tribulation for the kingdom. And he says, I'm on the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. That's a recurring theme uh, that he's, he's, one of the things John is trying to do here, or God's trying to do here through this messaging, 
is he's trying to assure and give confidence to believers who are going under incredible persecution, imprisonment, banishment, death, uh, all of these things. But he's, John's saying, hey, I'm with you in this. I've been exiled to Patmos, which was essentially a prison island, you know, like a, where they banish prisoners. And that's where he is. He's probably 85, 90 years old at this time. We're not real sure. But uh, he, he, he identifies with the believers that he's writing this letter. And then he says, then he hears this voice again, verse 11, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, what you see write in a book. Many times in the book of Revelation, the angel will say to John, or the Lord himself, say, write this down, write this down. And then he introduces the seven churches, which we'll see when we get into chapters two and three. The, what country are these seven churches in? Present-day Turkey, back then it was called Asia, some would later call it Asia Minor. There's other churches besides these seven. If you study Acts of the Apostles, there's a church at Troas, there's a couple other churches, but these seven are specifically mentioned. And we'll look at the number seven as we go through the book of Revelation. Seven is just, it's the watermark of the book. It's woven all through the book. You know, seven churches, seven woe judgments, seven bowl judgments, seven angels, seven spirits. Why do you think seven is so prominent in the, in the book of Revelation? Yeah, right. The, the book seven often will speak of per perfection or completeness, particularly completeness. And it's the same thing in the Gospel of John. When we study the Gospel of John, he'll have seven I am statements. I am the way, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. Seven, and he'll have seven what John calls signs or miracles. He doesn't put all the miracles like Matthew does. He puts seven specific, what he calls, and those seven I am statements coupled with the seven sign miracles at the end, John will say, I've written this that you might believe, and by believing you'll have eternal life. So you see seven. If John is indeed the author, I see no reason not to believe he's the author. It makes sense that he would follow that kind of opening chapter and then the use of seven. Any thoughts on any of this before we move? Okay. Okay. So then John turns around, and this is where we left off last week. He hears this voice, okay? He says, then I turn to see the voice that was speaking with me. And I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. That's verse 12. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded upon his chest with a golden band. Now this clothing is interesting because if you go back to Exodus, we won't do it this morning, this was similar to priestly clothing. You know, they had this special clothing. Uh, the, the Levitical priest, you know, an Aaron would wear and had the ephod here, you know, with the different gems representing the tribes of Israel. But it had a sash, too. Uh, and this one has a golden sash. So perhaps uh, this is Jesus in a priestly role. Because we know when Jesus came, his first coming, what are the three anointed offices in, in, the, in the Old Testament? There's actually... Pardon me? Priest is one. Pardon Prophet. And king. And often these are anointed. You can actually go back in the Old Testament. These are actually literally where they're dedicated or prayed over and they would pour oil. And of course, that's where we get the term Mashiach or Christus, you know, Christus, the, the anointed one. And in his earthly coming, in a sense, Jesus was prophetic. He fulfills all these roles, but he, he, he says, I only speak the words that my father gives him. He's given them. He's given them. And then, then he leaves and he says, you go take this gospel message out. And then we see Jesus now. What is his role now? Where is he at right now? He's at the right hand of Father doing what? 
ever, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's at the right hand of the Father. We have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, it says in Hebrews. So you see, prophetic role, priestly role, and then Revelation will be introduced to the kingly role. Now he's all three of those, don't get me wrong, they co-mingle, but it's, this may be his priestly role that was being revealed. And a couple of reasons why. The clothing, perhaps, then it says, in, it says his eyes, verse 14, the, his head was, uh, the hair was white like wool, snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass. Often in the Old Testament, brass is because is, it doesn't burn, or that it's often used as judgment, or that's where the, the, the offering would be put up on this brass. And of course, his feet are made of brass. And at the end of the book of Revelation, we'll see he's actually treading in the wine press where the grapes of wrath are stored. You know, he's treading. You know, his wrath is kind of being poured out. Um, and then he says, uh, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. It means it's, it's more brilliant than the sun at noonday. It's just, you know, you can't imagine what this was looking like. Now, remember, who was the apostle closest to Jesus in his earthly ministry? Perhaps John. You know, he's, you know, he's the one at the Last Supper that, that we, we think, according to the writing, he leans his kind of head up upon the shoulder of our Lord. He's part of the inner circle with James and Peter. And John. He's the one that's entrusted with the care of his mother at the cross. Son, behold your mother. mother. So he's close, you see. He's very close, intimate, in a sense, with our Lord. Uh, happens to be John. Could have been another name, but it's John. Anyhow, I'm just saying, um, <laughs> that's a joke. But he, he is that close to Jesus, but look, now he's seeing not what he knew in his earthly life and ministry. Don't forget when Jesus came, uh, he is not the Hollywood depiction of Jesus, uh, uh, you know, Jim Caviezel. What does the Bible say about the Messiah when he comes in Isaiah? Pardon me? He, he, good. He has no form nor comeliness that we would desire him. He's very average. He has to be pointed out. At Gethsemane, at the arrest, he's that one. Whereas David will say he's a very handsome man. Or King Saul, he was a very tall man. It, you know, sometimes there's characteristics. David had a ruddy complexion. He was an attractive guy. But not for our Lord. He, he says, you know, he's like a tender root that grows up out of a dry ground. There's no comeliness in him or handsomeness that we would desire him. Now John sees him in all his glory, ascended glory, post-resurrection. And what does John do? He says... Um, Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. You see, it's just, he's overcome. He just can't handle it. Uh, that's why, it, you know, if you study in Romans, it'll say, I have not seen nor ear heard nor entered in the heart of man what great things the Lord has planned for those that love him. It's just, if any one of us would catch a glimpse of it, it would just be, you know, be too much. We need, a we need a new body to handle that kind of voltage, you know, kind of. But it's the same thing if we, if we saw a glimpse of hell, what that might be. So we see here, he says, John falls down, saying, but when he, where else do you see a prophet of God fall to his, his fall down? Isaiah. Remember, he, see, he, sees, he just sees the train of the Lord, high and lifted up. And he says, woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And he's just undone. Ezekiel. Paul, when he's, he's knocked down on the road to Damascus, John, at the end of the book of Revelation, a mighty angel, he gets this kind of reaction from. You see, he just he can't handle it. 
Yes. Here. That better? Is that better? Can you hear me okay back there? I can raise my volume without, without this thing, if need be. Okay, so, but notice what Jesus does. What does Jesus do when John falls down like a dead man in verse 17? He reaches out with his right hand and touches him. Study in the Gospels how many times Jesus touches someone that a rabbi shouldn't touch. He touches the leper. He touches the little girl that was dead. Remember Jairus' daughter? He, 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 he reaches down to Peter's mother-in-law when she has a high fever, raises her up. Uh, he, he touches the, the tongue of the man that was deaf-mute. It's very interesting. The God of the universe, you know, whose transcendence, as Solomon says, the heavens of heavens cannot contain you, that when he comes down so close to us human beings, he actually to the literal level of a touch. I love this. You know, it speaks something of the God we serve, does it not? He, He's not distant and remote. He wants to draw near. And here he touches John, his old friend. You know, you can imagine with his right hand where he was holding the seven stars. And he says to him, uh, verse 17, do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. There's again, clear claim for deity. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last who was and is and is to come. So when people have a hard time in saying, Show me where Jesus declares his deity or that he's God. You take him to these verses. You don't have to argue it. They read it. It's plain reading of the text indicates he's God. Does that make sense? I mean, it, it, and again, this is one of the main points of attack on the Christian faith today, that Jesus isn't God. Am I right? This is, this is, this is it. I mean, there's other issues we have, but this is where they'll come. Because I, I have not living overseas, dealing with Buddhists, with Muslims, atheists, they all will agree Jesus is exemplary. They'll say he's a prophet. In Buddhism, he's a, what they call a bodhisattva, a, a, a saint, uh, a guru, a mystic. You see, they all will that, but he doesn't allow us that. You know, he does, as C.S. Lewis says, look, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He says there's no in-between. There's no in-between. And when I have a discussion, polite discussion with Muslim friends, and they believe Jesus is a high and holy prophet, I says, if he's a prophet, he's a false prophet. If he's just a prophet, he's a false prophet. Because you'd never have Moses, Zechariah, Elijah, Isaiah making these kind of claims. Any thought on that? Any of these? But do you see where you, you get the proof text as we move, march forward into Revelation here? Okay. He says, uh, now he says, I have the keys of Hades and death. Let me just go through some of these here real quick. Um, now, of course, uh, where this happened in a lesser time was at the Transfiguration, where Jesus allowed his radiance, so to speak, to be, uh, to be manifest. Just first, when he walked around, just like the tabernacle in the Old Testament was God, with, you know, he had the Shekinah wherever they went in, the, in their wanderings, the Jews. So too, when Jesus is here, he is God made flesh, but he's veiled in flesh. It almost like think of a nuclear radiation or something that has to be shrouded in lead and all that other people, you know. So too, Jesus was like that, but at the transfiguration, you catch a glimpse of his glory, where he's white, he's brilliant, he's shimmering. Uh, one of the writers of the King James, even 
fullest, the, the, the best soap, and nothing ever was this white or glistening. And what does the Lord do here? Of course, we hear a voice from heaven. There's the cloud again. Uh, this is my son whom I love, and with him, well, please listen to him. When the disciples heard this, remember John 43, they fell face down to the ground, just like John's doing here in Revelation. But Jesus came and did what? Touched them. Get up, he said, and don't be afraid. The very thing he's saying here in Revelation chapter 1. See? When he's with his believers, he'll say this. He'll, he says, don't be afraid. You know, don't. Now, there's a very interesting place in the Gospel of John. Just hold your place here. If you look at the arrest of Jesus in John, um, let's see, okay, where he, he's, he, they're coming to arrest him. If you look at the different Gospels, they come out for him in, in full strength. They're coming out with torches, with lamps, with swords. You probably have a temple guard. You may have Roman centurion. You have a, a, this whole thing being led by Judas to arrest Jesus at night up in the garden. But look what happens here. Uh, verse 4, uh, John chapter 18. John chapter 18, uh, verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward. Notice he walks towards those that are going to arrest him, these soldiers and the temple guard and all this, priests and whatnot. And he says, whom are you seeking? They answered him and said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am, or I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Look at verse 6. Now when he said that to them, I am he, they drew back and what? Now, are these men that are used to fall into the ground? Ready? Do you ever see pictures of American soldiers in Afghanistan fully equipped in a... These guys don't do this kind of stuff. But right when he says that word to them, puts that out, the I am statement, they, I don't, if they fall back and they go to the ground, now they get up and they finally, but you see the, I don't know how to interpret this exactly, other than the power of his word coming out at that moment causes them to, to, to go down. Can you imagine when he comes back at the end of the age? When we study whatever's happening at the Battle of Armageddon, that's not an engaged battle where there's fighting. It comes, and how does he destroy all the enemies? The word of his mouth, the sword. You see, We'll get to that. This is word, just his power. Okay, back to Revelation. He says here, um, he, he says, verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, um, this is, we're going to see, this is the tabernacle, artist's conception of the tabernacle in the wilderness. On the right side, we have the manna, 12, almost like, uh, perhaps like uh, pita bread, you know, loaves. And then over here, you have the uh, menorah, you know, the 12 candles. And here we have the altar of incense. And the priest would go in there, behind this curtain, of course, is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And he would go in there, and he would take care of this, replace the bread, make sure the oil is here, trim the wick. It was very uh, ceremonial, you know, responsibility just for the priest. But when we see Jesus moving in the type of clothing that John just described among seven lampstands, it has that kind of connotation. You understand what I'm saying? And he's going to look at each. And again, lampstands, uh, the, the only place the lamp gets light is from what? The wick. The wick, which gets it from where? Oil. Oil. See? 
the oil, which is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is building the new temple. Each one of us are living stones that are connected into this new temple structure. First Peter chapter 2 says. So he's, he's like checking. He's going through and he's going to see when we get to chapters 2 and 3 of the seven churches. He's checking the condition of the light. Okay, He's checking to see what, what it looks like. But again, the, 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 these lights are uh, the light, basically the light in a darkened world, which is the church. You know. Okay, he'll say here, um, now, uh, this is another artist's conception of what's going on. Can you hear me back there okay? That's a lot better. Okay. I'm for technology. Right now. John, yeah, can you hear me okay? I don't, I don't want to torture you too much. Okay, so this is just another artist's conception of the same scene uh, where John is, you know, come undone and he catches this glimpse. Uh, now, he will say here, um, and we'll get into each of these parts in a, in a second. He says, I have the keys of, of Hades and death. We'll get to that in a second. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which you are, are, are going to take place shortly or after this. Now, many who study the book of Revelations believe that this is a schedule or this is pragmatic of what, what have you seen, you know, the, the introduction, what, what things that are perhaps the seven churches and what's going to, and the things which will happen after this, which is, However, we interpret from chapter 6 through the end the things that are future, particularly when we get to chapter 20 and 21, what the end of the age and the new heaven and new earth, okay? Some suggest this could be an outline that John is putting forward here. Um, I want to get to this thing about head. Uh, okay, this idea, I am the living one, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forevermore and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Revelation chapter, right where we're at here. Now, what does he mean by this? If somebody said to you, explain this to me, please. You know, a, a curious or a new believer or somebody, like Pastor Mark said this morning, you're prepared. How would you respond to this? Well, I get a cup of coffee. Okay. What would you say? What does he mean there? I mean, it's a powerful, loaded statement that our Lord is making. Okay, good, right. Anyone else? Thank you, Jim. Anyone else? Yes, please, Jim. I am the way. I am the way. You know, he says, I am. That's very important. The living one, I was dead. So, I mean, that, there, you, there you're getting the, the, the basic gospel. When Paul says, what's the basic gospel that I received? He goes to 1 Corinthians chapter first, uh, uh, 1 through 3. And he says, this gospel that I received, I now give to you, that Jesus Christ was crucified. He was buried for three days according to the scripture. He rose from the dead according to the scripture. Death and resurrection has to be there. That's why you'll see this death and resurrection. Death and, and, and what's going on, why this is so important for us today, as it was 2,000 years ago, 
if we lose the central message of the gospel, we are no longer a church. Okay? We're a good club, a social club. We do good stuff, but all this is really good. But that is the deal. Death, burial, and resurrection. All other religions will have a teacher slash prophet. Muhammad, Lao Tzu, Confucius, L. Ron Hubbard with Diametics. Go down the list. We have a dying, rising Savior. Why? Why people ask me this, well, why couldn't we just look at Jesus as his example, the words he spoke, the way he told us to live, love our neighbor as we love ourselves, turn the cheek, pray for those that, why can't we just stay with that? We like that. Because someone has to atone for our sin, and we can't. But they'll say, what, what do you mean they have to atone for our sin? Okay, I mean, every major religion tries to address a problem that man has, okay? Buddhism, they say man's problem is, the Buddha will say man's problem is attachment. He, he, you know, he wants things, he can't get them, he suffers. If I have to have a cup of coffee in the morning, I don't get it, I'm upset. If you lose a, a, a dog that was your, you're really upset. If you lose a loved one, this idea of attachment, uh, appetite, and these attachments, we keep coming back in reincarnation till we finally get enlightened and we're detached. He offers the four noble truths and how to do that. Islam, Muhammad say man's problem, he's not under proper relationship to Allah, Sharia. You know, what does God require of me? You know, fast during Ramadan, pray five times a day, declare that Muhammad is the only, Allah is the only God, Muhammad is his prophet, on and on. They try to address a problem. What, it, what the Bible puts forth, what is man's problem, primary problem? Yeah, it's separation. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I think it was point A when Mark did it this morning. Admit your, that's man's biggest issue. It's not his sin. I mean, the sin is, is the fruit. It's the bitter fruit of being detached and separated from God. You know, alcoholism, adultery, all of these things are the fruit. That's not, that's not the main issue. The main, that is a serious issue, but the, the real issue is man is separated from God. And there's no way a, a sinful man can approach an all-holy God. The distance is too great. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We can't do it. Any more than if all of us were on Malibu Beach and we're going to swim to Hawaii from that beach in California, the best swimmer in this room would get how far? A mile, two miles, I don't know. Nobody's going to make it. The distance is we need a carrier a boat or a plane. So too, God sent the God-man. We needed a carrier, somebody to take us, okay? That's, that's man, and so when we have this, I am the living one, I was dead now, look, I am alive forever and ever. Therefore, he can say, I hold the keys of, of, of death and Hades, Hades, the underworld or the grave, if you will. The idea being that Jesus triumphed over it because he triumphed over death, he can release the prisoners, right? Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. I mean, how many years was the Jewish Israel in bondage in Egypt? 400 years. Hard bondage. Oppressed, whipped, make bricks without using straw, kill the firstborn baby boy. All of this, very typical of a prison house of sin with an oppressive ruler, Satan, Pharaoh, okay? What gets them released, finally? from that prison house of 400 years. Is there anything they could have done, like lead a revolt or anything else, to get 
free. They couldn't do it because they had no, they were weak, they were slaves, they weren't even a people group, right? The only thing that was going to get them free out of that place was to obey God and his messenger, which is Moses, and to kill an unspotted lamb, catch his blood in a bowl with a brush or a hyssop, put it on the doorpost, go inside, pack your bags, eat the lamb, get your strength, we're out of here. They were freed, how? By the blood of the lamb. How were we set free? By the blood of the lamb. Okay? Very, very important point. And when people reduce Christianity to good works and charitable works and all this, without this, it, 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 we're just another religion. Do you understand? A good, I mean, a good works, like the uh, Peace Corps or something like that. Red Cross Peace Corps. The good works. But if we don't have that, that's it. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We should be a people of good works. Works of mercy like Bay does, you know, down at the Family Center and here and literacy and all this other stuff. But that's not what saves us. What saves us is this and compels us then to do the good works. Any thought on this? Not, yes, please. A little bit louder. I see, I see that it says living and living. And isn't Jesus the only living God? Aren't all, aren't they all dead? Well, yeah, well, yeah, I mean. So when we pray, I want to pray to someone that's so. Well, that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, yeah. and Jacob. God is alive. I mean, all of these others will put forth a God or a God concept. But there's, there's, the, the thing is with truth, it tends to be exclusive. You hate to say that sometimes in a tolerant society. But two plus two equals four. It's not angry at the number six or the number three. It's just two plus two equals four. That's true. Okay? When Jesus, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh to the Father, but by me, if you believe that's the truth, that's the only truth. And that's not to attack other belief systems, but just say, if, if we don't declare that, but if we say, well, you mean well, just be sincere, all roads lead to the top of the mountain, one day you'll find God, that, we're doing a disservice. Do you understand? We're doing a disservice because we're not giving people the truth. Give them the truth, you know. And, and I, time and again, I encounter people that think, I just had two young guys from Saudi Arabia. They were exchange students. We had dinner with them. And he says, I can't buy it. He says, I, I respect Jesus. He's a prophet. He's a, we said, well, how, how will you get to paradise, what they consider? He says, I'm trying to do good works. I'm trying to give alms. You know, I'm trying to do this and that. It's the very thing the Bible says, no. We're not saved by works of righteousness, you know. We're saved for works of righteousness. I remember there was a big religious conference in India when we lived in Southeast Asia. We didn't go to it, but I heard all these different groups were there, and the Hindu parliament said they loved everything the Christians were doing there, leprosy work, AIDS outreach, literacy schools, but there's one thing they didn't want the Christians to do, proclaim Jesus Christ in the gospel. They, they just want the good works. They just want the good works. According to police records, no husband was ever killed by his wife while he was doing dishes. <laughs> In other words, good works, good works are not offensive to a fallen world. They are not. They like them, you know. But when you start preaching Christ and Jesus, and this is the way, and by the way, we are all sinners in need of a Savior, that's not always a popular message. Somebody else had their hand? Okay, now, um, the keys of death and hate. Of course, he, 
the keys often represent authority. Remember at Matthew 28, after resurrection, Jesus has completed God's plan for redemption. He says, all power and authority is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Not only that, I give you power of the demonic and, you know, all this. So he, he opens the prison door. He, it says in uh, Corinthians, when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, that's our body, getting a new body, and the mortal with immortality, and the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he what? He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? The victory. He holds the keys. He, this is very powerful, you know, how he proclaims it here. Uh, now, that comes to this next issue. It says, okay, he says, um, write these things which you, that's verse 19. Now, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Okay. There's going to be places in the book of Revelation where symbols are explained. I call it like a given. You know, it's, there's other places they're not and it requires us often to go back to the Old Testament to try to search out meaning or context, how it's used. Some, it's, it's still difficult, we're going to see as we move forward. But here he clearly says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And, and he's going to address those seven churches, we'll get to that next week, uh, that are in Asia Minor, starting with Ephesus. So we know that's the churches. And of course, the, the, the light, a church really is, it says in 1 John chapter 5, oh, second last verse, that we, the whole world lieth in darkness. We, have, we don't understand that fully, but the whole world, a fallen world, lieth in darkness. How many have noticed that the world, the world system, not the globe, but the world system is not pro-God? Does that seem right? It's not. It, it's, it goes the other direction. But a, a church comprised of people who are light bearers. A church is a community within a wider community that radiates light radiates light, okay? A transformed life of the members, uh, the gospel, which is the life of the world, proclamation of Jesus, good words and good deeds. Uh, we are community within the wider community, which is the world. Now, as long as that light is there, it can actually grow and, and start more fires or more light by planting churches or by doing outreach. So we got that. Here's where some interpreters have a... Uh, when, when I, I'll try to bring to you as we go through Revelation different takes on different uh, topics that we're coming into. He says this, the mystery of the seven stars, which shall I write, the seven golden lamps, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, there's some good scholars, they'll say the, the angels here, angel is a, is a word for what? If you look at it in Greek, how do they translate angel sometimes? Messenger. I think you'll see in Matthew when John the Baptist is in prison, he sends some of his, he says he sends messengers to Jesus to inquire, are you the one or should we look for another? Okay, they say maybe it's an elder, maybe it's the pastor of one of these, each these church has a pastor. There's issues with that. I'm not saying that's not it, but here's over 60 times in the book of Revelation, you're going to encounter angel or angels in the plural. Every time you do, it's a spirit being. Okay? 
when you study Daniel and other places in the Old Testament, like uh, Zacharias, when there's an angel, it's an angel. When it says an angel, it's an angel. So I don't want to press it too hard here, but I think we have to widen. When you, when you step into any apocalyptic literature, Daniel, Ezekiel, um, these kind of books, that you come in, we're going to talk about this next week, there's different language. Different words mean different things, like I said before. When you see a beast coming out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns, that's not a Loch Ness monster coming out. That, that means something else, probably world kingdoms or something. When you see a woman riding a beast, that's not literally a woman riding a beast, okay? Or, or a horse comes out of heaven, that's a pale horse, which means famine or death. That doesn't, you look at, oh, there's a horse. No, you understand these things have metaphoric. Okay, we're going to get into that when we get into this thing. I'll talk about this next week. This could be literal angels. Here's some of the reasons that I, I, I kind of lean this way for this reason. Uh, here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 4.9, Paul. He says, for I think that God has displayed us, in other words, his life, his ministry, what he's going through, the apostles last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Like angels are observing kind of what's going on here. It says this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are not all angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve those who inherit salvation? So the idea is angels serve us. You see them releasing Peter from prison. Even in the New Testament, you see some angelic activity. Now, we're not supposed to look for angels or pray for angels or to angels, but to realize they have a role, just like the demonic. When we get into further in Revelation, we'll look at the whole study of the demonic and Satan and his higher uh, powers and principalities. Um, he says, see that you do not disguise one of these little ones, children, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. This is where we get the concept of a guardian angel. Like an, somehow there's this assignment. Uh, it says here, this, I find this interesting. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority covering first on her head because why? Because of the angels. I mean, what does that mean? I don't want to stretch it. I don't want to get into a big topic of angelology here. But this is a concept that angels are observing us. Somehow angels might influence church. You don't want to overstretch this. But turn with me back to Daniel chapter 10. I just want to look how some of this stuff unfolds here. Daniel chapter 10. Um, Daniel says here... Um, he has this vision, Daniel chapter 10, and in verse 5, he says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with a gold of uphaz. Okay, the linen, the gold bat, just like we see in Revelation 1. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet were burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words were like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men with me did not. I fell down in great terror. Then it says in verse 10, Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and the palms of my hands. Just like John was undone. O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you. By the way, there's only one apostle that's called beloved. Only one apostle has that designation of beloved. Who was that? John. John. And John got the revelation. Here, Daniel is called beloved. He gets the revelation. Intimacy with God is often a place of revelation. 
I won't, we won't expand here. Okay, he says, Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel. From the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of you. Now look at verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now this is an angel, probably Gabriel, talking to John. He's going to give him, uh, Daniel, give him this revelation. He says, When you started praying, I was dispatched from the throne room of God to come. But, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen uh, to your people not many days hence. Do you see that? He says, then he says in verse 20, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return and fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. He's, he's suggesting that he's coming downward with this message and he's got interference from who a prince of persia well that's not the king i mean it's an angelic being and who goes to help him or run interference michael now often in the scripture gabriel is the messenger angel he delivers the message to zacharias that his wife elizabeth will bear a son john the baptist he'll take the message to mary behold you you will conceive and bear a son we call jesus you know he their messenger michael's role is often what Warrior. You'll see that in the book of Jude and other. So it fits here, but what's suggested here, and I don't want to press it too hard, is that over this kingdom, that there's a spirit. Okay? Uh, the idea being, when you study Ephesians, and we'll get into this later in the book of Revelation, it talks about the demonic world as, as powers and principalities, you know, levels of uh, rankings of the demonic. They're not only present, omniscient, don't get me wrong, but there does seem to be this levels of strength and authority, satanic, satanic coming down. We'll especially see this when we get to Revelation chapter 12. Any question on this comment? We're getting into, you know, once we launch into this, it's a, it's a new world. But I'm going to try to show you what different theologians and commentators say, and I don't want to press any issue too hard. But there is this kind of thing uh, going on. And, of course, Daniel will get the message, the, pro the prophetic message, but he's told at the end of the book, seal it up. For the time is not at hand. John will say, open it up. The, the, the scrolls will be open, and we're going to get the revelation of God's basic plan. Another verse here, uh, kind of an interesting verse, I would say. It's here, Ephesians, which is a very spiritual church. We're going to get to that next week when we come to the church at Ephesus. It says this in Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers where? In heavenly places. This is not the king or the provincial captain, or he's, he says, might be made known through the church, what? The manifold wisdom of God. How would you explain that? What is that suggesting to you? What's Paul saying? Now he's writing at that time to a very spiritual church. The church at Ephesus has no correction or rebuke. They will when we get to next week. But what's he saying? What's what's? Yeah, he's inviting, but what he's saying, he's saying, you, and now we're talking local churches. Okay, he's, he's talking to a local church. This is a church in Ephesus, right? There might be two or three of them there, but it's a church in Ephesus. He's, he's teaching them how to grow in Christ, how to have proper church order and all this, you know. But then he's saying, this is one of the reasons, or this is something the church is about. What is he saying in that verse there? What is one of the purpose of the church? Pardon me? I can't. 
Yeah, but he says the powers, okay, undo, undo the principalities and powers. Paul uses that in Ephesians 6. We, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Powers and principalities in high places, spiritual. Where is Satan's realm now? He's the prince in power, what? The air. The air. You know, when he, he goes to a, into the throne room to, to accuse of Job, God says, where are you coming from? He says, we're walking tough, you know, to and fro around the earth. Peter says, beware of the enemy. He, he goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he knows. So we know that's his realm. But it's suggested here, they're looking that it might be known through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Through our church, we should see God's love. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by what? Your bumper sticker? What? Your love one for another. From all different backgrounds. There's neither Jew, nor Greek, nor Scythian, nor slave, nor... You see, through your love, through your mercy, your tribulation, your compassion, your suffering, your patience, your intercession. And if we're being observed, that's a powerful thing. You see, that, that more is going on here than what's going on here. Does that make sense? We're going to see that when we get into the book of Revelation. And when somebody goes out of the church, I digress, but let's turn to 1 Corinthians... This is where they had to discipline somebody. And uh, which shows a, a church that's operational, that's functioning properly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. What time is it? Okay. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Among you, such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. He's saying not even the unbelievers. That a man is living with his father's wife. Probably a stepmom or whatever. And you are puffed out about it. You shouldn't be. In other words, they're letting him stay within the, in the, in the community of believers there, in the church there. He says, verse 4, In the name of the, our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, the church coming together, local, along with my spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Deliver such a one to Satan. For the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Therefore, he says, a little leaven contaminates the whole lump. Verse 7, therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. And then he says, uh, in other words, put this guy out. Put him out from under that protection and let who get at him? Think of the prodigal son. When did he get in trouble? When he left his father's house. Okay? And when he got out there, things got better or worse? My sense is they were pretty good for about a month. I'm reading into this. You know, he's got all these friends and he's got this money. But then everything falls. The, the economy goes. There's a famine. He ends up, what kind of work? Taking care of pigs and eating the, the corn husk after the pigs ate it. Now, Speaking to a Jewish, Jewish audience in Luke 15, that's about as low down the... Why? The way of the transgressor is hard. But what did that cause him to do? Go back. Go back. See? Same thing will happen here in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, bring him back in. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, Paul will say... It, it really is beautiful how this thing, uh, correction, works here. Um, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. Um, he says, okay, verse 5. 
he says, but if anyone has caused grief, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, but if anyone has caused grief, and he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not, not to be too severe, the punishment which was inflicted by the majority of the church is sufficient for this man. So that on contrary, you ought rather forgive and comfort him, let perhaps one is swallowed up with much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Okay, bring him back in now. Perhaps he's repentant, we don't know. And then it says, verse 10, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, I have forgiven anything that I have forgiven this one for your sakes. Verse 11, what's he say? Satan should not take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. You see? We're not going to harbor unforgiveness and bitterness to this man, especially as he repents. He wants. The whole emphasis of church discipline is restoration. Yes? Restoration, forgiveness. But he's saying put him out that he can get, you know. The worst thing a child can do is run away from home, right? The protective covering of the home. But when, if you, then if the child runs away, you, hope, you pray that life is so hard on the street that's going to do what? <laughs> Drive the child back under the cover. So we'll get into this uh, as we move into the book of Revelation. Any thoughts on any of this stuff? We're kind of covering a lot of ground, but I wanted to establish this first chapter. Okay, back to Revelation. I'll wrap it up here. Now, he says... Uh, so... Um, now, this, ha this has a uh, negative effect, too. False messengers, false angels. Uh, two religions will start by angel visitations. Do you know that? One, Muhammad, Saudi Arabia, the year is 610. Remember, Muhammad goes to a cave. He encounters an angel. He'll say, it's Mo uh, Gabriel. And the angel say, Ikra, Ikra, you know, recite, recite. And then he gets the Quran, you know. And the other one is uh, Joseph Smith. Upstate New York, 1820, he goes out, he's this guy that goes out looking for Indian treasure in that. He says, I encounter an angel named Moroni, and he gives me this revelation. And out of that, we'll call the Golden Blades, and I'll get the Book of Mormon. Off to the races. So you have these angels here, but then you're going to have false angels. Or, uh, that's why Paul will say, uh, an angel of light. Uh, uh, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You see we have to be careful of that. Uh, that, that oftentimes how cults will start, because the founder will say, I had a revelation, I had a visitation, I heard a voice, I encountered a spirit. Yeah? These are two fastest growing religions in the world today. Uh, now, the one's small, 15 million, don't get me wrong, and the other is 1.2 billion. The ones by birth, predominantly, that is to say Islam, not conversion. But nevertheless, it starts with an angelic visitation. Yes, Jim? Why are we to believe well, yeah, I mean, we don't have to believe it. I'm just saying these men put forth this truth to establish their belief system that this all starts with an angel coming and giving me a revelation. You don't, I mean, it could be, a, it's not, I'm, you know, whatever. But if there is, it's a demonic spirit. Why? Because he's the father of lies, you see? The, if he can come in and influence somebody to, to mislead people, He'll do it. You know, I'm not saying it was or it wasn't, let alone even Joseph Smith in up, you know, New York. I'm just saying, beware that these angels we see here are God's angels dispatched for the service of revelation and protection for God's people. This is altogether different. Yeah? Any comment on this? Okay, we close on this. 
then Jesus says, of course, uh, I am he who lives and was dead. Uh, I just want to touch on one thing and then we'll close it down. Um, this is the idea. Out of his mouth comes this sharp sword. And you'll see this again um, uh, in Revelation chapter 19, near the end of the book, when Jesus comes. And he actually, then it, it's kind of like uh, Revelation 19, verse 13. It'll say, uh, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed with fine linen horses. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. You see, it's that idea, not a literal sword, of course, but the idea of God's word cuts. It'll say that in Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of the soul of the spirit. And that's why when the word of God is preached or teach, it can have a convicting, you know, it can cut, which is good. You know, a sword has two blades. One is for judgment or wrath, but the other is for healing, like a surgeon's. You know, it can cut us, but it can cut us to make us better. You know, we're convicted of sin, therefore we repent of sin. But you'll see this idea of the sword uh, throughout the scripture. The sword has that kind of power. I, I like to think of a sword, and I'll close on this, but a sword has an edge here, an edge here, and it comes to a point here. Well, if the point is Jesus Christ, the Old and the New Testament, point towards Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, search the scriptures, Old Testament, for they testify of me. What we have to do as believers is learn how to use the sword. We have to learn how to use the sword of the Spirit. Okay, That's why he'll say that in Ephesians chapter 6. The word of God is, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. We have to know how to use Too many of us are operating in this world with a pocket knife. You know, we know this verse, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray, you know, we know this verse, that, but that, that's, the, that's not the world we live in. We have to know uh, not just what we believe, but why do we believe it. If somebody said to you, well, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, that's what my parents taught me. It's like, okay, that's not bad, but that's not, we need, we need to be prepared to give an answer to everybody that asks the reason for the hope that lies within us. Well, my, one of the things I believe in the course of this revelation is we'll learn how to do that. Okay, because it forces us back into the Old Testament. Any closing thoughts? Any? Next week we get to the seven churches, or one of the seven churches. <laughs> We're launched it. Okay. Any questions or thoughts? All right, who would like? Yes, please. Okay, good. Did you hear that? Everybody hear that? No. The I don't have battery, so okay. The church is still in process, so when we go out, try to be quiet, especially by that front foyer, or if you go out this door or whatever. Thank you. I should remember that. Any other one? Okay, who would like to close that in a word of prayer, please? Yes, thanks, David. Lord, we thank you for this time.